The Start On Demand. On demand. Justin Trudeau says the Ukrainian Airlines plane that crashed in Tehran may have been shot down by a missile. We'll speak to Global's David Aiken about this, and he tells us some rather concerning news about what is happening at the crash site. HGTV Canada's Brian Baumler joined us in studio today. He's in town for the Winnipeg Renovation Show. Thomas Miles has been named the Winnipeg Blue Bombers 2019 Ed Kotowich Good Guy Award winner. We speak to him, and we'll tell you about our fascinating if not sometimes demoralizing, trip to a place called Body Measure. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Friday, January 10th podcast for The Start. So the question of the day at cjob.com, we mentioned the question was, when you want to make a complaint about something, how do you do it? And the results, 37% say face-to-face but calm. 30% say by email, so I can compose my thoughts. 17% say face-to-face and angry. Brett smash. 12% say I never make complaints. It's not in me. And 5% say on social media. Cast your vote at cjob.com. I know, Greg, you're working on putting a package together that we can air during the show on complaining. Richard and Julie started this yesterday, right? They did, yeah. Sean O'Shea, consumer affairs reporter with Global News, joined them yesterday, and they also had an author who uh, talks about the art of complaining, and one of our listeners says, best practice to deal with complaining about something is to be polite and respectful to the person you're dealing with. There's an old saying, you can attract a lot more flies with honey than you can to vinegar. You have to remember the person you're dealing with for that complaint is empowered to deal with that situation. If you are pleasant to deal with, that person will try their best to help you. And I think that wraps up our segment. (laughs) I think it very concisely wraps up, I think, the overall philosophy. But Kelly, it's not always possible to remain composed depending on the pushback that you're, you're, you're getting from the individual either on the other side of the phone or on the other side of the counter. Yeah, that is uh, definitely the case. I have always gone with a philosophy of, you know, if something's gone wrong, I'll go to the person in charge and just say, you know, I think as a manager who wants your company to be successful, you would want to know about this. That's how I start the conversation. You know, so that at least, you know, you're, you're letting them know you want them uh, to try to be able to fix what's gone wrong rather than pounding the desk and, and screaming and hollering at them and, I want this for free. You know, I, I, if you back somebody into a corner, it's going to be very difficult to, uh, to be able to get any kind of satisfaction. Jeff, I'm guessing you're probably the guy who would not complain. Correct. I would just uh, stew in my own juice, go home, and uh, <laughs> never have anything to do with that business again. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't rip them over social no, media? I just, no, I just can't be bothered. And I, I find any time... So often it seems like if you do want to bring up an issue with anything, they're like, oh, well, and then you're filling out paperwork and giving them your email address and we'll get back to you. And it's just the rigmarole of it is just not like I would rather have the free time than have to go through like two hours of BS to get to save my $7 or whatever. Yeah, the money might make a difference, but when it becomes something yeah, if big. It was, if it was like my car or my house or something, yeah. it might feel different. We but. had our engine go on our car a couple years ago and it was on recall you have to put oil in it though no 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 it wasn't that it was it was already we knew it was on recall we had called ahead of this road trip said 
are we a part of the recall? They said, you should be fine. We got halfway. We got, sorry, just outside of Edmonton. Whole car just dies. And now you've got a car in Edmonton. You got to, and they agreed to fix it, but wouldn't agree to help us get home or get back to pick up the car after it's fixed. And so I was like, sorry, that's thousands of dollars. Now I'm, I'm, I'm all in on going at you. But, but politely, you start with the email, then you get a phone call. The problem is you can't get a hold of anybody in some of these corporations anymore. So you have to go through some sort of random website that doesn't give you a name. And it's a pretty frustrating, it's deliberately frustrating, I think, to prevent people from getting their money back. I worked for a company like that where when people would call to complain, they would ask to talk to my manager, but our, our managers had sort of limited, they were just supervisors in a call center. They had limited capacity to provide, you know, sort of customer satisfaction so that we would have to give them like a mailing address for headquarters in Montreal. And and I knew every time I did that, that I was essentially going into a black hole that because it was designed to prevent customers from complaining and getting what they wanted. It was awful. I hated, mm. hated it every time I had to give that out. Jeff, you're so kind hearted. I can't <laughs> believe that you would go at this other than with a smile on your face. Yeah, I, I'm not a complainer. Like if it's something small, like you know, McDonald's screw something up. I'm not going to complain about it because, yeah, it's not worth my time to go all the way back to the store. But if it's something else, like, for example, my apartment had no hot water yesterday, yesterday morning, I'm not going to complain about that because what can they do before I go to work? Nothing. So, but if that were to happen again and again, then I would complain about it. But, you know, be like, can you guys fix this? Because this is my life. Like, I need, <laughs> I need hot water. It's our life, too. Yeah. <laughs> Here's exactly. a giant kettle. You, you got to work with me, all right? <laughs> it's Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And Greg, more on what happened in Iran and the stunning development that was revealed yesterday. Yeah, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying a plane crash that claimed the lives of dozens of Canadians and others headed to Canada is believed to have been caused by an Iranian missile. The evidence indicates that the plane was shot down by an Iranian surface-to-air missile. This may well have been unintentional. He added that the news will undoubtedly come as a further shock to the families who are already grieving in the face of this unspeakable tragedy. The Boeing 737-800 was six, six minutes into its trip from Tehran to Kiev when it caught fire and crashed in a field Wednesday. All 176 passengers and crew on board were killed, including 63 Canadians, nine of them from Winnipeg. Chief political correspondent for Global News is David Aik. And David, I know the story has uh, is just uh, overwhelming so many of us. It's a difficult story to cover. But what role can Canada play now, and what role will be they be allowed to play in this investigation? Well, as it turns out, Canada is going to play a significant role here. And since uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, made those comments about mid afternoon yesterday, a lot has happened. Uh, and here's what's going down: the Iranians have invited. Um, investigators from Canada's Transportation Safety Board, the TSB, to come to Iran to be on site to participate and observe the investigation. And not just Canadian investigators, Iran has also invited investigators from the American Transportation Safety Board as well to come over. And on top of that, officials from Boeing will now also be involved. Boeing, of course, manufactured the plane. So Boeing officials will assist with the black box data. The black boxes have been found. There's two of them. One is slightly damaged. Iranians saying it could be a month, could be two months before they get the data off, could be years before they complete the investigation. So um, that's important. In addition to the investigators, Canadian diplomats uh, should be in Turkey by about now, 
where they're expected to get visas to get into Iran. And a reminder, we don't have diplomatic relations with Iran, haven't had any since 2012. So this is a big development. So we should get Canadian diplomats into Iran to assist with the identification of remains, other consular issues. So that is the role that Canada is playing now as it continues to participate, gathering evidence about this uh, plane crash and its causes. So we've gone from, you know, Wednesday, Iranian officials saying that they might not hand over the black box, at least to Boeing, to this wide open, everyone can come in and participate in the investigation. And I can surmise that's probably in response to the fact that they're being accused of having this missile hit the plane. Perhaps not, but that might be what some people suggest. And so therefore, the question is, is, is this their way of saying we didn't do it? And when it comes to them asking for Canada for proof... Will we provide any of our intelligence on that question, David? Well, I'm sure that we, right now the intelligence we have, I mean, we asked Prime Minister Trudeau for that yesterday, and he's not sharing that. But uh, So the Iranians, yes, they're, it seems they're doing the right thing by inviting the appropriate investigators in, but that's just basically honoring international law and protocols. But on the other hand, Iran is quite explicitly, Iran authorities are rejecting the idea that it was a missile that brought down this plane. They say uh, that's, uh, that's just not true. And Canada should put some evidence of its theory um, on the table. So that's a problem. Another big problem, uh, there's lots of reports, including one from a CBS reporter on the ground today, that uh, the crash site is being bulldozed, that equipment is being taken away. And this is a problem for investigators who normally would want to see how the plane broke up or where the debris landed. That would tell a lot about what happened. But that debris is being bulldozed and taken away. Now, the, the one thing we note that Prime Minister Trudeau yesterday spoke to Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte. Why? Well, the Dutch led the investigation in 2014 to the downed airliner, MH17, that, that, uh, was, that crashed in the Ukraine, shot down by a surface-to-air missile operated by Russian rebels. The Russians didn't cooperate with that investigation, but the Dutch were still able to get enough evidence to make that uh, conclusive proof it was a surface-to-air missile. So the Dutch have experience here. Canada's going to draw on that. It's great the Iranians are cooperating to a degree, but it's not a very good sign that the evidence essentially is being bulldozed away right now. So if, if it is proven true, is, it, is this a case for some sort of retaliation? I asked Prime Minister that very question yesterday, and, uh, and his answer was too soon to tell, basically, because he wants to see the results of the investigation. Of course, He's, he's advanced this theory as an unintentional missile strike. Um, you know, God help us if it's intentional. I don't think it is at this point in time. But uh, once he sees the results of that investigation, I assume at that point the government of Canada would consider uh, what, if any, responses uh, it will make. David, uh, the question I have is what options would Canada have to retaliate? We, we don't have that diplomatic relationship. So uh, economic relationship is limited. And, and clearly, militarily, we're not equipped to, to go and do anything on our own. What could we do to, to say, hey, uh, we're not going to stand for this? Yeah, I mean, it definitely any, any action Canada is going to take would likely be through multilateral forums, through other defense or, uh, you know, uh, allies that we have. But one thing we could do is apply the Magnitsky Act to uh, Iranians believed to have been responsible. And we, the Magnitsky Act essentially sanctions individuals in, re- in regimes, freezes bank accounts, assets, prevents their travel. Um, and we've done that with some Russians right now. We know Russia is a bad actor in Crimea, and so we've taken action against Russians involved in that. Uh, that would be something presumably the government can consider for uh, any Iranians it identifies as being responsible for this, uh, this missile strike. 
30 seconds when we when we go forward today are we talking about weeks you mentioned years as a possibility and we've seen other investigations take that amount of time and so that leaves canadians in limbo for quite a long period it is going to be a long period i think Uh, as i mentioned the investigators from canada are en route today to iran we have the diplomats in turkey today so they'll be getting into iran they're getting their first look so as officials our officials arrive i assume one of the things they're going to assess is uh, a timeline uh for the investigation and and all, uh, just as importantly, I suppose, uh, getting a sense of uh, how long it will be before uh, victims will be able to be returned to Canada. Uh, that is uh, a difficult uh, process that uh, officials, authorities in Iran are going through right now. Chief political correspondent for Global News is David Aiken joining us live on 680 CJOB. David, thank you, sir. Yeah, no problem, guys. Have a good morning. We need to give you a traffic heads up for something that is coming to Portage in Maine this afternoon. But before that, Greg, you just showed me a clip with the great Canadian comedian Jerry D. Yeah, he's hosting the Family Feud Canada on CBC. And yesterday, I think they were the defending champions, the Dubois family from Lorette. And they got to that uh, showdown, you know, where they go up to the front and you, you answer the question. And then typically you go back and answer your family the questions till you get three strikes. Well, they were in the fourth or fifth round. And so there was one question, one answer for all the marbles. Mm. And so this is kind of how it went down. We'll apologize in advance for the quality of the audio, but it's lighting up social media. It's had 870,000 views in the last nine and a half, ten hours. So people are really digging this clip, and it involves a Manitoba family, so we got to play it for you. All right. Real simple. There's one question. Only one answer. Whoever gets it, they're playing for $10,000. That's it. Whoever guesses this wins the game. Here we go. Name Popeye's favorite food. Chicken! Show me chicken! Spinach, Sherry. question was, if you didn't hear it, what is Popeye's favorite food? And with an extraordinary amount of confidence, the young woman says, chicken. Now, you want to know what's crazy? (laughs) Only 54 of the 100 people surveyed said spinach. Really? Which was the most popular answer and, of course, the correct answer. But uh, absolutely bizarre circumstance there involving a Manitoba family on... Family Feud Canada. I do. I appreciate why she said chicken. I do though, because too. The first thing I thought of was chicken. Did you? Yeah, not not beca- because I didn't even think of Popeye the Sailor Man. I just thought Popeye. I heard Popeye and immediately thought chicken. It took me a second to go. Wait a minute. That's they're not asking about the chicken place. They're asking about Popeye the Sailor Man. But so she just reacted kind of on instinct like that and. She's trying to get the jump on the buzzer, right, and yeah. to chime in. So, anyway, you're, if you haven't seen it already, I suspect you will be seeing it in your timeline of your social media very shortly. And her face, expe- like facial expressions. She's just like, what? And you could tell she didn't get it. And then the host, again, they're dying laughing afterwards because you can only laugh at getting it so wrong. So, coming up this afternoon, scheduled from 12 until 4 p.m., at Portage in Maine is something called Round Dance in Solidarity, Wet Suetten, and this is hosted by Aboriginal Youth Opportunities. Now, I had reached out to them, Brett, just as an aside, and uh, the one of the 
guys there is Michael Champagne. He said he's actually not one of the organizers, so couldn't give me the information, but is trying to get someone else on for us. But yet, but this is one of many dances and protests we've seen at Portage of Maine in recent years. Yeah, they say, join us in a round dance in solidarity for the Wet'suwet'en people. They are protecting their unceded and unsurrendered ancestral homelands from the development of a coastal gas link and asserting their inherent rights to sovereignty. We are putting a call out for drummers and supporters. Dress warm, bring your drums, medicines and friends and the hashtag is Wet'suwet'en strong and we yeah we've reached out to that organization uh, i reached out to them on instagram and we were hoping to get them on the show and we're still hoping to get to speak to them today on 680 cjob but it inevitably brings up the debate should these events be held at Portage in Maine in the context where they're in the middle of Portage in Maine. Yeah, and what does it accomplish? One of our listeners saying, there's plenty of room to have Indigenous dances at the Forks. No need to block major roadways. My response to that question and comment was, who will see it there? And our texter and our loyal listener says, social media and mainstream media advertising the location and time would allow them to make it a traditional spectacle. And whoever wanted to support the cause would show up or they can just, I'm going to uh, S-I-K sickness, uh, anger people off and (laughs) accomplish nothing. So, and I think that's the prevailing attitude in our community when these protests take place is that, hey, you're getting in my way of where I want to go. If I'm on the other side of it is, well, maybe a couple of people will at least then understand why we're, why we're here. But so do, the, go ahead, Brett. No, I was just going to say, do they, could they not line the corners of Portage and Maine? And they've done they, that. They've done that in the past, right? Because to me, I think that's actually a more effective way to, to get your message out. Because if you drive through Portage and Maine and you see hundreds of people lining all four corners, you're definitely going to go, what is happening here? I'm going to look into this when I get home. Whereas if you're stopped or stuck in traffic and you end up, you know, delayed by 20 minutes, half an hour, because if this thing goes until 4 p.m., that's going to be chaos downtown and it's just going to anger people and they're not going to care like if i'm stuck in that and it, it it makes me late for wherever i need to be i don't care what your message is now usually sometimes they these protests have happened on the side sometimes they've moved into the center but they don't usually stay in the center for hours on end it might be 10 minutes it might be 20 minutes and then uh the protesters or the dancers will eventually move on if signs are there if they say what's what at and then you're looking at that being like well what is that or and you might go home and google it i see your point that you would have at least people reading the sign and saying i don't know what this is about should i know what this is about and then doing the research i don't know we've also talked to organizers of these types of events in the past and they they'll say very frankly like yeah we're sorry that you're delayed by 10 minutes, but we should also be sorry that lands are being taken over for oil or that our planet's in crisis or whatever the cause might be. And so there's both sides of the equation. I mean, it depends how long you're delayed, I think. If it's five minutes, you might not care. If it's 25 or 30, you might have an issue. And back to your point, Brett, uh, there are the Tim Hortons workers that are on strike or have been locked out at mm-hmm. the Tim Hortons at Portage and Maine. They've been at Portage and Maine at that northeast corner every day for the last couple of weeks. They're not jumping into the middle of traffic, and I think they're getting their point across. So your point, I think, is very valid as well. Uh, I just I just know that if I had something that I felt nobody was understanding and listening, and I thought I had a really good reason to protest, and I had dozens or hundreds of people who were prepared to have my back, I might want to take that extra step 
out of frustration to say, hey, listen to me. I've got something to say because not everybody has the same platform for communication to get their message out. And quite often they feel there are people that feel that this is the only option they have. This cause was brought up in a protest at Portage of Maine in July. It has to do with a pipeline in B.C. where there's been an ongoing debate whether construction can continue or if protesters are getting in the way. It's been a year at least since that's been going on. And so they're they're saying something needs to be done. At the end of this segment, we have tickets to give away for the Winnipeg Renovation Show, which is happening this weekend at RBC Convention Center. And Greg Mackling, I know you must be excited because there is someone special sitting to your left. Well, I've been friends with this guy for a decade. He doesn't know it, but he's so ubiquitous. He's everywhere. Uh, Brian Ballmer is in the studio. He's here for the Winnipeg Renovation Show. Brian, great to meet you face to face. We've had you on the show over the years, off and on and from time to time, but it's great to finally uh, sit down with you. It's been quite the 18 months or so for you, Sarah, and the kids. Island of months. Brian, what a... Well, okay. It's been quite the 15 years yeah. or 20 years or whatever. <laughs> well, what's it like when you go places and everybody feels like they know you? Because, I mean, you're in our living rooms, our family rooms, yeah. and have been for, for a decade or more. Yeah, it's it's different. And, and, you know, living on a small island in the Bahamas for the past two years, you know, I'm just I'm just the guy that bought the hotel. Uh, and I come back to Canada and, and, you know, I'm pumping gas and someone yells, Brian! And I'm, I'm you know, I kind of jump like, what? What did I do? And then I realize, I remember, I'm like, oh, right, yes. So first they recognize you. Second is the next question, like, hey, I'm just happened to be renovating my kitchen. And I got a quick question about A, B, or C. How often does that happen? Number one question is, hey, when are you coming to my place to finish my, <laughs> that is that is by far the first question. But no, there, there's, uh, it, it's great meeting people because, you know, they do wake up and we're in the bedroom and in the kitchen and. The kids are watching the show before they go to school, and uh, it's it's great. And I'm I'm amazed how many kids watch HGTV in the show. I'll have you know a four year old girl in the mall screaming, "There's Brian!" You know, <laughs> and uh, you know, ten years ago they just thought I was Caillou's dad. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. One of my sons actually does record your programs and does watch them back, and so I think there's a phenomenon there. Uh, I connected with my grandpa big time doing renovations mm-hmm. with him. He was a he was a he was a um, master carpenter, and I learned so much from him. There is something magical about doing a home renovation or a building project with your dad or your mom or yeah. your siblings. Yeah, and the interesting thing, I mean, you know, t- television is, is television. I have a, a team of 12 editors that that make everything go smoothly and, and you know, pull out. Well, not House of Brian, we show some of the, some of the sideways things, but... Television is it's entertainment. So HGTV are shows to get people inspired about looking at their homes. And then you kind of take it from there. Uh, it gets people excited. Uh, and then you go into the real world and, and you get on site or you come down to the, the renovation shows. And, and then you go home and tear your home apart. Not in the opposite order. I must have miscounted somewhere along the way watching the number of kids, but you have four. There are four. I don't four. know if one's missing, you know, as you move move through the home. But Four the, we can prove. Four that you can prove. <laughs> and the the thing that's so real about that is that when people do their renos, they're living in their home, right? Yeah. And they have their kids and their dogs and their cats yep. running around. So you can very much relate to just the complicated mess. I have friends renovating their house right now. And every time I walk in, I think, oh, boy, that is... That is the situation, yes. And so the stress of that is huge. It is huge, and it's both sides. I mean, a lot of people talk about renovation 
you know, the divorce dust that happens. And, you know, I kind of look at it from a different, a different angle now that the renovation is really a catalyst. If there's, if there's a crack in the foundation of, you know, your home or your marriage or whatever it is, it could be a bad meal, a bad vacation, a broken down car. It could be anything that kind of sets off that, uh, that volcano, but living through the reno again, it, if, if you can, if you can handle that, then, then there's nothing to worry about. And you come together maybe. Uh, yeah, there's, you know, it's there's some days. It's like driving through the mountains, you know. There's valleys, <laughs> there's peaks, there's there's floods, and there's waterfalls. There's all kinds of stuff. So Brian, I am not a homeowner. I live in an apartment. I was a homeowner. One of mm-hmm. the reasons why I'm not a homeowner anymore is because I was a terrible homeowner because I don't know how to do anything yeah. around the house. But let's say one day I do decide I want to get a home and I want to learn how to get better at. Renovations mm-hmm. is the Winnipeg Renovation Show the kind of place where I that's a good starting point to learn. I was just going to say it's a great spot to go whether you want to do this stuff yourself and you want to invest the time and the money and the and the mistakes and the buying new material and the frustration and you know all that stuff of, of learning how to do it yourself or whether you want to hire someone to do it the the home shows the renovation show is is a great place to start. There's local trades, local suppliers. There's there's experts there talking. Uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll be on stage 6 p.m. tonight and 1 p.m. tomorrow answering questions, just interacting with people. But all the trades that are there, the booths that are there, you can, you know, th- this is a great chance to go in and just talk and look at new materials, get some ideas and go from there. So your latest show, Island of Brian, people are dying to know. Mm. This was only supposed to be one season, right? It ended up it being... It was supposed to be six months. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, the hurricane, you got mm. through that more or less okay? I mean, how much can you share with us that, that, when, that we're not spoiling the season? When the hurricane uh, was hitting Abaco in Grand Bahama, it was a dead, eerie, dead, calm, cloudless, beautiful day on Andros. Completely missed us. Um, now that being said, it, it affected the families of most of our employees at the island. So, and, and of course, logistics and shipping. So we spent the next, uh, two or three months doing some fundraising and flying homeowners back and forth and, and family members and, and sending food and materials up to Abaco and Grand Bahama and just moving families around. So it, it affected, you know, there's over 700 islands in the Bahamas. It affected 20 or 30 of the northernmost islands. Uh, and and the rest are in good shape, but you know the, there was there was a big big impact there. Seeing that devastation, did it change the way you wanted to tackle that project, or even just your time there in terms of the, the family seeing something like that as well? Yeah, it's uh, it's just it's one of those things. It's a it's a flip of a coin, the roll of the dice, that kind of thing. You know where we are geographically, we're sixty miles south of NASA, right on the tongue of the ocean, between the Grand Bahama Bank. So there's there's these massive shallow areas. And then this deep tongue carved in, you know, 10,000 feet deep right on the edge of the island. And for some reason, the hurricanes tend to move south or north. And and we haven't been touched since 1923 by the edge of a hurricane. So, I don't know, fingers crossed? We'll see. Things are changing, so you never know. You Now is the time to get down there and enjoy all of that <laughs> while it's still there. So... <laughs> We are we are open. We opened two weeks ago. You opened two weeks wow. ago. That was yeah. my next question. You read my mind. So it's uh, obviously going to be a very popular spot. Extreme weather. It's fairly cold today. It's going to get colder over the weekend. Extreme heat. What would you prefer to work in, Brian? Oh, it, it's tough. You know, the extreme heat. There's no escape from it. Uh, we're not built. We're built down there to be outside. So you are outside all the time. Not everywhere has air conditioning. So. You know, you're here in, in minus 20, minus 30. You can, you know, most most buildings are heated. It's set up for that. So 
I'll take the heat, though. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going one way, and then you went another uh, way. You can still jump in the ocean, right? <laughs> yes. And if you're on a build site in this winter, I mean, you can only, I guess if your truck or something's there, you can yeah. jump in, but the escape is, see. I have hard. a new respect, though, for working in the heat. You know, a lot of people go on vacation, you see a guy leaning on a, on a tree, and you think, oh, sure, you're lazy. And you go down there when it's, you know, pushing 40 degrees, and you're just, you're sweating two seconds after you come outside, and then you start working it. It is. It's on. It's like having people sitting on your shoulders. It's. It's unbearable. You have a new appreciation for the concept of manana. Yes. Yes. Of you later. I got to take a break. The good thing is you will see uh, season two of the show starts airing in, in February on HGTV. So you'll see. Uh, you'll see the end. Well, not the end. You'll see the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, not the end. What you know. time are you going to be on stage again tonight? I'll be on stage uh, at the RBC Convention Center at 6 p.m. this evening. And then you're going to be on stage as well tomorrow, right? Tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Okay. Brian Baumler, HGTV Canada's Island of Brian. He's going to be at the Winnipeg Renovation Show. And right now, Greg, we're going to actually speak with... Uh, Longtime friend of yours, right? Yeah, almost two decades now. It's hard to believe Peter Shelley's been in Canada, been in Winnipeg. He's from Australia originally. He joins us now by telephone. Good morning, Pete. Good night, boys. How are you? We're doing all right. Uh, Manitoba 2, Manitoba firefighters returned home from Manitoba yesterday after several weeks down under. Why don't you tell us uh, what's going on from from your point of view? Give us a little bit of a geography lesson first as to where you're from and and uh, what's been happening and how it's been affecting people that you know. Uh, well, I think it's pretty much known that we've got some crazy fires back home. Um, so where I'm from is a little place called Marlow. It's about four hours east of Melbourne, about eight hours south of Sydney. So it's right in the uh, area where the big fires are happening. Uh, unfortunately, my cousin lost everything in the Malakuta fires. Uh, that was the one about just over a week ago where everyone was on the uh, beach. And then they went back and they lost their whole property. Uh, my dad, which is in Orbos, which is about 15Ks from uh, Marlow, uh, he was uh, evacuated uh, from an elderly uh, hospital. And so he got uh, on the old army Chinooks and they took him out down to a safer place in Maui, which is about two and a half hours away. Evacuated by helicopter. Yeah. That's intense. Yeah, they got the uh, army Chinooks, yeah. That's intense to think about. And from this distance to be this far away must be hard. Just this morning, Australia said it was urging nearly a quarter of a million more people to evacuate their homes from the Melbourne area as well, even with some rain that's fallen or minimal rain that's fallen. And so instead of getting better at all, it just it feels like it keeps getting worse. Well, that's the thing right now. I think it's going to get up to around plus 40 over there. So with the heat comes, um, you can deal with some of the heat, but it's the winds that'll get you. So how, what's it like being that, like, half a world away is is where you're from, and to, to see your family so directly impacted, Peter, it's it's got to be difficult for you and, and, and your family here that have been to Australia and, and know where this is all happening. How are you managing all that? Uh, we just keep in contact and make sure everyone's being safe and smart. Um, you know, we're not, we're used to bushfires back home, and you've all got processes in to see what happens and just to make sure you go through with it. When you see the devastating effect this has had on wildlife, it's almost overwhelming the numbers that are being contemplated, anywhere from half a billion to a billion animals. Maybe paint a picture for us how big a part uh, kangaroos, koalas, and and other animals are are part of Australia. They're so uniquely Australian. 
Well, they're very much, yeah, as you say, they're very much unique to us. There's not too many other places in the world I know that happen. It's none. But uh, it's just, it's devastating all across, mate. Um, look, no one likes to see anything like that happen. Um, you just got to try and put in your regulations and try and help help them out. And as uh, people, you sit there and uh, if you see any animals on the side of the road or anything, you just try and do your best. Peter, do you, it's Brett here. Do you feel, hey, hello there, do you ever feel helplessness you know when you're looking at what's going on back home when you're halfway across the planet uh oh look it's always tough um but you know that uh through friends and family they've got a system in place when this stuff happens like i was back there in 2013 2009 and stuff like that and these things happen all the time um it's just the magnitude of it i've never seen before these fires are huge absolutely huge so that's that's the telling point right now. We keep mentioning the heat, but you added that the, the real issue is always that wind. And Australian authorities saying today that they're talking about a fearing a megabit blaze, and I put that in quotes because of those winds. So in Winnipeg, we're familiar with the kind of winds that can bring all sorts of different conditions. Is that similar in the sense of the gusts that you would see there, or is it far oh, far worse? Because yeah. uh, because it's uh, especially with some of those fires on the coast, you get the uh, gale force winds. And so you can have a fire going in one direction, and in a matter of minutes, it'll turn straight away. And so that sometimes, that could be fatal. So you've got to be so smart and so just in tweeds with everything that's going on. No time to run in that situation. No, unfortunately, if that wind changes, you're, uh, it's unfortunately a bit of a lost cause. I am just blown away at how matter-of-factly you're talking about this, Peter. I, I, I'm supposing... It's because you grew up with this as a reality, despite the fact that this is unprecedented in terms of the numbers of fires that we're seeing this year. No, the the, the largest scale of it is crazy, but it just it's it's Australia. It's summertime. This always happens. Is that just and it? Just, this just always happens. Look, it, you know what? You can sit there and you can put in certain. Um, measures to help it like uh every summer they do a fire crew and they'll sit there and clear land and stuff now unfortunately they've stopped a lot of the high country clearing and things of that nature which they probably should relook at um but other than that yeah it's just something that comes with australia with living in australia and we're pretty uh we're a pretty strong bunch it kind of sounds like manitobans in flood season that you you see yeah. it and sometimes <laughs> it gets worse but you know there's only so much you can do yeah, like that's the thing. If you get, unfortunately, if you want to live up in the country where the uh, where the forests are, unfortunately, this happens sometimes. Peter Shelley joining us live on six eighty CJOB, an Australian now living in Winnipeg for many years. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Good to talk no to you. All right, guys, have a great one. Right now, Greg Mackling, we are going to welcome a member of the Grey Cup champion, Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Doesn't that sound good? It does sound good to Every say it. Every time you say it, it feels good. It sounds great to to say it. Thomas Miles joins us now, and he is joining us as the uh, newly minted winner of the Ed Kotowicz Good Guy Award. Congratulations, Thomas, not only on the Grey Cup. I think we've spoken to you since, but we'll congratulate you again. But the Ed Kotowicz Award, this is a very special honor uh, and very well deserved 
Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's always good to, to talk to you. Like I said, uh, Winnipeg, uh, born and raised Churchill High School, University of Manitoba, and then you give so much to the community. We're going to list off some of the things that you do, including uh, the work that you do with the Food Allergy Canada and the Children's Allergy and Asthma Education Centre at Winnipeg Children's Hospital. Uh, there's a whole long list of things that you do here. Why the commitment to all of it? I suppose that's um, just how my family works. Um, Across the country, I've got uh, my mom's side in BC and uh, the rest of my family here in Winnipeg. And all sorts of uh, members of the family make various commitments to the community. And I suppose that's just something that um, I was raised to value. And that's, that's what I've um, found to be the most fulfilling work in my life. You forgot this volunteer work, but you also mentor the Winnipeg Blue Bombers Youth Football Club. And i reading that you've never missed a game in your three years with the Bombers? Never been right, sick? Never yeah. been hurt? No, I think uh, 54 straight games with the Bombers. That's an impressive feat. You're, uh, are you approaching Ironman, the team's Ironman status with that? I don't know. No, I think uh, Stanley Bryant is still holding that one down by a long shot. I think you should put up a, a tote board up in the <laughs> dressing room over the off season, and then that way uh, we can keep track of this. So uh, you've done school appearances as well. A big part of, I think the first time we spoke to you several years ago had to do with the tackle bullying and the break the silence on violence against women programs. And you go up north. Uh, what's that experience like, Thomas? For so many of us, uh, northern Manitoba is sort of a concept. A lot of us have never been north of Grand Beach or Gimli. <laughs> right. And uh, we we really stand behind the message that uh, we're not just a Winnipeg team, we're a Manitoba team. And part of that means uh, getting out and seeing the rest of the province and visiting our awesome fans who are really uh, all across the province. So it's been it's been really neat to take those programs up to various communities in northern Manitoba. We've got a whole host of uh, trips planned in the next couple months. And that's that's definitely been one of the more um, rewarding and interesting parts of participating in these bombers initiatives, because like you said, I hadn't been north of, I think probably Gimli um, until I, we went to Norway House and uh, we were in Thompson and Snow Lake, and I think we're going up to Shimadawa. So yeah, there there are some really really. Uh, fantastic communities up north that I don't think we Winnipeggers uh, really think about enough. Have you had a chance to get up there in winter and experience any of those winter roads? You know, those can be kind of fun to traverse. Or what stood out with you in some of your travels? Uh, Well, really welcoming communities, firstly. Um, But yeah, just the resilience of the people, right? The the winters are, you think they're tough in Winnipeg. It's it's different up north because it's a bit more wild. Um, but we had some local guides take us snowmobiling when we were up there, and it was just a really fun experience. You also serve on the board of directors for the Immigrant and Refugee Community Organization of Manitoba. You've been a big brother with Big Brothers and Sisters of Winnipeg. We still haven't listed everything that you take part in. I'm curious to know, how do you manage all of this? Like, how, how do you time manage all of this? Because for a lot of us, we don't, we barely have time for one community commitment, never mind the dozen or so that you've made to this province. 
That's, I think, the beautiful thing about the CFL is that it's six months on and then six months off. So, I, you know, I've, I've got to find a way to fill my time in the off season. Uh, I, I do that with school, I guess. But, I mean, there's, there's only so much time you can spend in the gym, right? So um, I, I think a lot of my, um, my community commitments I, I give back to in the off season. And then, on the other hand, during the season, we work relatively short days. And so I've, I've never really found it a challenge to sit in other stuff. 135 days, by the way, until the uh, first pre-game, <laughs> preseason game against Edmonton, May 24th. So uh, we're counting it down already. Did you just kind of gloss over something there, Thomas? Are, are you back at university? Uh, yeah. What are you taking? I'm doing a master's in business administration. Oh, uh, yeah. Just a casual, just, just yeah. a master's, hey? Pro football player, <laughs> and I'm taking my master's. No big deal. Hey, Thomas, what's been the most uh, invigorating part of this championship? Because uh, you're uh, one of four Winnipeg-born players on the roster this year, and I would suspect that that you had a different perspective, the four of, of you individuals that, that are from this community, seeing the Blue Bombers win and celebrating with the community. What's been the, what's been the biggest surprise and biggest joy of that? Not the biggest surprise, but I think the biggest joy was the parade. Um, it was pretty incredible to see the city turn out like that on Portage and Maine and uh, and go down to the Forks. That was pretty, um, just very special. It was about everything I imagined it would be uh, for a Winnipeg team to bring a championship back. And the enthusiasm and the energy from the city has been so rewarding and fulfilling. So it kind of, it, it makes all of the sacrifices that we make throughout the course of the season so worth it. Thomas Miles, the 2019 Ed Cottowich Good Guy Award winner named by the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Congratulations, sir. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate the time. Oh, thanks for having me. Take care. Do you have one more question? Greg? No, I just wanted to make sure that I acknowledge the other three Winnipeggers by name because folks might be going through the list. Thomas Miles, Nick Dembski, Andrew Harris, and Brady Oliveira, of course, the other three Winnipeggers on the Blue Bomber roster. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Greg, you want to add something to the bomber chat we just had? Yeah, Brian Smiley at MPI listening this morning says, <laughs> GMAC, you forgot about Jeff Gray. Yes, Jeff Gray makes it five Manitobans on the Gray Cup champion Winnipeg Blue Bombers. My mistake? Forgive me, Jeff Gray. Jeff, much bigger than me, and he can ride a unicycle. So, Oof. Oh, that's I right. I want to mess with Jeff. So coming up on Monday, we're going to tell you more about our experience. We're going to interview uh, the women behind Body Measure. This is uh, 1086 St. Mary's Road. We had the opportunity to go down there yesterday, and I put some pictures and video up on my personal Instagram story. They'll be up for a couple of more hours yet if you want to follow me and have a look. But, Loren, uh, how would you describe the experience that we went through yesterday? So the goal of this play is to sort of give you an inside look at your body so you and not your weight. To stop getting on the scale and look at your weight and see what's really going on in your insides, like your fat and your bones and your breathing and your metabolism and all the rest. And so I, it was very interesting because the machines were very non-invasive. Like one, you just stood in and this thing spun around you giving you that 360 3D view. Another one we lied down in and she described it like a photocopier, like you were laying on a photocopier and it was true. Just kept kind of going over your body, scanning things. And then we breathed into this machine 
to get your uh, metabolic rate. Yeah, the resting metabolic rate. And it was fascinating to see the results after, if not super disconcerting, particularly <laughs> the picture. So I was super, very relieved, the bone density. I've always been worried about osteoporosis and those kinds of things because there's some people in my family with that. So I was like, oh, cool, my bones look good. But then they showed the picture of the fat and it's in <laughs> color and it's it's a rainbow, but it ain't pretty. And uh, it was it was it, it was food for thought to not eat more food. So bone density, your muscle mass, mm-hmm. and your the amount of uh, extra fat that you're carrying around is what they measured. And unfortunately, I do really well on all three. <laughs> I have a lot of <laughs> all three. So uh, uh, very sobering conversation and investigation. Brett, you on the other hand. Are uh, the picture of of good health? You're in very good stead, yes? Uh, I was surprised with the results, yeah. I mean, I I was a little short on the muscle mass. I was just underneath what they would deem sort of normal to healthy. But And I've said that before. Like, I know that over the course of the last year and a half, I've lost a lot of weight, and some of that is muscle, and I'm actively working on trying to gain more muscle, but I was just under the threshold. I, too, was happy with the bone density, Loren. I, I was off the chart on that one, uh, which was crazy. And she suggested maybe because I was carrying so much extra weight, my bones have to work harder to carry that weight. So that makes sense. I'm not a scientist. Um, but I, I, th- I think just what was really cool about it is it, it can give you sort of a really specific roadmap, regardless of what your goal is. If you want to lose weight, they can tell you how to do that. If you And learning... The metabolic thing kind of sucked for all of us because we had you couldn't have caffeine after 4 a.m., Loren, and I had to put my vape away, and we couldn't eat. So we were all kind of cranky by the time we got there. But it was important because it tells you how many calories your body burns at rest, and then they extrapolate how many calories you're burning through the rest of the day. Right. And then that'll tell you how many calories you can consume in a day, what kind of calories you can consume in a day. So whether you want to lose weight become an elite athlete, or you just want to be healthy as you get older, which is sort of my goal, because I can feel my body starting to break down. My mm-hmm. joints are always sore. I just want to be have a healthier, stronger body. This was super fat, and it was just neat. It just was like, it felt like a... Like we were in a live science experiment. Yeah, I had said it felt like I was back in Israel going through their airport security because it had all these different scans and <laughs> things. Because scanner. obviously the security in the Middle East is a l- even more crazy than it is here. But it, it was a scanner. I loved how in the analysis afterwards, we each went into a room to get our report card, so to speak. Brett's <laughs> took like two minutes and Greg and I were tucked away in these offices for like 20 minutes. Like, yeah, so some, there's some good news. And uh, <laughs> there's almost there's, an um, intervention on yeah. mine. <laughs> <laughs> so on Monday, we're going to speak with Melina and Erica from Body Measure. Bodymeasure.ca is their website if you want to learn more about the really cool stuff that they do and how they can help you measure, empower, achieve, know your body, transform your life. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon. 911. 911.
911, what's your emergency? Ah! I'm on a cruise ship! Ah! There was an explosion! Oh my god, the ship is sinking! I can't get out! There's water everywhere! We're going down! I've got a lock on your location, stay with me. Hurry! Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.